everybody. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we get started, and then we're going to jump into John chapter 2 this morning. So let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for gathering your family here together this morning, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to worship you, um, to know you for who you really are, to, to glorify Jesus, to make the real Jesus known here. I pray, Lord, that you work uh, in, in all that we're doing, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in every aspect of it, like the singing, the preaching for the words, the taking of communion, what the kids are doing, even the fellowship making, working all these things and we're just to make Jesus known to each one of us. Uh, speak to each one of us over the next few minutes as you see fit. Uh, work in each one of our hearts, open our ears to hear what you have for each one of us. And we become more and more like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're just continuing in the Gospel of John. And we're going to be in John chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 22. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and read that for us this morning. You can follow along. We'll have it on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And this is what it says. It says, After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the, Jew the, Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables and he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume you. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for us uh, show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Last week, uh, Reggie preached through the first part of chapter 2 of John, and he did a really uh, great job, I think, of setting this up to go through the next uh, several chapters together. And like he said last week, the first half of John, in his first 11 chapters or so, is constructed around uh, several of Jesus' signs, through which Jesus is shown to be the fulfillment everything that God had ever promised. Through these signs, Jesus is making himself known as the Messiah. So he steps into several institutions and festivals of Judaism. He shows how he himself is the fulfillment of what those things were always about, what they were always pointing towards, and how he's making God known more fully than any of those things ever could. But in doing this, he isn't always understood what he's doing and saying in the moment. Last week we saw Jesus go to a wedding where the host was running out of wine. And Jesus steps up and he turns a bunch of ceremonial purification pots full of water into like a ton of really good wine. And Reggie explored what all was going on there and even how the wine would represent so much. Right? The wine at the wedding was really good wine. Uh, it was a super 
generous gift that Jesus gave the groom and his family. As it kept the groom and his family from bearing like, certain guilt and shame uh, in their society and from, by running out of wine. And even more than that, it meant not only would they not be shamed uh, for running out, it meant they would be honored for how well they provided for their guests. And then at the end of the story, it says the disciples believed in them. But what were they believing in at the time? Probably the miracle they performed kept them believing at least that he was who John the Baptist had said that he was. But they also likely didn't fully understand what Jesus had just demonstrated. However, you know, on this side of the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, having a fuller picture of the personal work of Jesus, and even for us, like partaking of the Lord's Supper weekly, drinking the wine, remembering His blood that was shed to cleanse us of sin once and for all, we know that the wine Jesus made that day, the purification pots uh, that He made useless in the process, meant so much more than anyone could have known. And when John told the story of John the Baptist back in chapter 1, we saw something similar with that statement, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. It meant one thing in the moment, but only later, and on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection, with a deeper meaning of what was said, that they start to really come to light and be understood by even his closest followers like John. So now, in the second half of chapter 2, Jesus and some of his disciples and family, they go to Jerusalem around Passover. And Jesus goes to the temple. Jesus is stepping into the institution of the temple during the festival of Passover. This is the next sign. Only this time, Jesus doesn't actually perform a particular miracle as a sign. And as John tells us this story, he sort of splits it between what happened in the moment, a little bit about how those present either understood or misunderstood what Jesus was doing. And then he tells us how we can understand what Jesus said and then on this side of the cross, on this side of the resurrection. Kind of stretching our own understanding of who Jesus really is. Like I said, in this story, Jesus is stepping into really two things in one place. It's the Passover festival, and it takes place in the temple. The focus here is more on the temple, but I think the Passover is significant also. Passover, of course, was instituted in the time of Moses, when God delivered the Hebrew people out of slavery, out of Egypt. It predates the temple. It predates the law. It predates the sacrifices. Before God gave his people the law, before he gave them the tabernacle, before he demanded sacrifices, God delivered his people from Egypt. And in so doing, he spared them from that final plague on Egypt, which was taking firstborn. But the Hebrew people, by God's instruction, they killed the lamb, and they put its blood on the door uh, posts of their homes, and the Lord passed over their homes so that their firstborn were spared. So the Passover was instituted as a celebration that year by year was always meant to be a reminder of how God saves, of how God delivers. It's likely significant then, right, that Jesus, who's referred to elsewhere in Scripture as the firstborn of all creation, he steps into the Passover festival and into the temple, and with a cord he starts driving away the animals that were needed for sacrifice certainly doesn't all register at the moment. 
Nobody probably gets it. But Jesus is already saying something really big about who he really is and what he's come to do. Let's take a look at the temple, as it's really John's focus in the story. Now the temple, in its very first form, was the tabernacle. It's the tent that the Hebrew people carried through the wilderness like after their exodus from Egypt. God's people were instructed to build this tabernacle. It was to be a place where God would dwell with his people, right? But in order for that to happen, for God to dwell with his people, the obstacle of sin, the thing that keeps impure and unholy people from being in right relationship with a pure and holy God, that obstacle of sin had to be dealt with in some way. And so the space was set up and the, there were ceremonies and there was rituals that were practiced in order to keep God's presence like away from anything impure, anything unholy, while also being able to be among his people in some way. And so the tabernacle was even set up with these like buffer zones in it, right? There was like an outer section where people would come and worship and they would bring their sacrifices. And then there's a holy place. Priests would go in there regularly. Not everybody could go in there, just the priests. And they would go in there and they would perform their rituals and their duties. And then beyond that, there was another space. It's called the Most Holy. This is the space where the Ark of the Covenant sat in the presence of God once. Only the high priest could go in there. And they only went in once a year. And when they went, they had to go with sacrifices for themselves, sacrifices for their family, sacrifices for all the people. They had to be just totally, ritually purified in order to enter. And then, throughout all this space, there's all the, also these other several like elements and pieces. There's the lampstand, and there's the table, and there's the bread of presence, and so on. And from the start, the tabernacle, the first temple, and all the pieces of it, and all the spaces in it, and all the practices that happened in it, they were supposed to be constant reminder of who God really was and what he was really like. It's a constant reminder that sin and death remained like lodged between God and man and that we needed saving from sin. And all this sacrifice and ritual and washing these sort of buffer spaces that are built into the tabernacle, they didn't exist to keep God away from people. It existed so that God's people would actually know him for who he is and what he's really like. He's in the most holy place because he is holy and he is pure. He sits on the seat of mercy because he's merciful. Within the ark is the Ten Commandments. He's just. Even the materials of the first tent, from which, what they were made from, it was all this like plunder from the Egyptians that God had provided them on the way out. And so the very materials were a reminder that God provides, that God delivers, that God hears. That's the first tabernacle, the first temple. Eventually, though, through the time of the judges, the temple was all sort of lost and it was unused, it was almost forgotten. And it wasn't until the time of David, when he was the king, that the Ark of the Covenant um, even came back into the picture. He kind of found it in this corner of the kingdom. He found it. He brought it into Jerusalem. But it didn't have a real place. The tabernacle wasn't still around. The temple hadn't been built yet. And God didn't let him build the temple. It was Solomon who finally built a really grand temple. 
right? A house with art, with all the ornaments, with all the spaces, with all the pieces where they're meant to be. And God blessed Solomon, and he promised to dwell with his people there so long as they remained faithful. But they didn't. And so later down the line, eventually all is lost. Israel and her kings did not continue to trust God. They were not faithful. And so Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, and the temple is destroyed. Still, as God always does, he was working to fulfill his promises. And he made a way for some people to return, a remnant. So the temple is eventually built again, though it's not nearly as beautiful, it's not nearly as grand as Solomon's temple. But Haggai, Haggai was a prophet during the time of this rebuilding of the temple. He says this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 9. He says, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this temple will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Which brings us to the temple of Jesus' day. Now the temple had undergone significant renovation and expansion under Herod over like the last several decades. As the Jews mentioned here in chapter 2 of John, where we just read, it had taken 46 years to build the modern temple. Herod had made this expansion with the blessing of the Jews and a renovation, and with that renovation came a tax. And the tax had to be paid by every male over 20 years old, and they had to be paid with a Tyrian coin because of the purity of the silver of that particular coin, which is why these money changers set up in the temple. They're bringing Roman coins and that sort of thing, and they're trading them in for the right kind of coin to get the purer silver so that they can pay their tax. But I don't think that Jesus turned over the tables because he was mad about the taxes. Rather, Jesus was doing and saying the things that he did as a sign, as a statement about who he was and about what his ministry was about. He's stretching his followers' understanding of God's desire, worship, and the temple. Like I said, Herod built this temple with the Jews' blessing. And I bet that their willingness to pay this tax had a lot to do with their sincere desire to honor God by building him the most beautiful place possible. And many of them probably even saw this expansion as a fulfillment of what Haggai had prophesied, that the latter glory of this house would be greater than the former. But this was no fulfillment of prophecy and God's promises. The truth is that this temple still paled in comparison to what God was doing. This new and improved temple, it did nothing to make God known or fully to his people. And God was never, ever, ever just looking for sacrifices and offerings and buildings as if worship was a matter of giving God enough things to make him happy or to appease him so that he would work in somebody's favor. That's not what God was doing. That's not who God is. That's not worship. Worship means like ascribing value rightly. And to worship God in this way, we're going to be worshiping Him, worshiping Him as something that He is not. Worshiping God rightly flows from knowing Him and relating to Him rightly. And so the temple and everything in it and all its daily and seasonal rituals and sacrifices were meant to make 
God known to his people. It's a place that they were supposed to base their whole lives around, to build their day by day around, because every part of it was an expression of the truth about who God is, so that they could know his heart, so that they could worship him rightly from their heart. But the tabernacle was made of cloth, and the temple was made of stone and of wood and other building materials. And all the pieces of the temple were made of metal and, and things like that. And none of those things could fully make God known. They could only point towards His presence. They could only point towards His character and point towards His promises. Just like the purification jars back at the wedding in Cana. They could never provide water that could actually cleanse the heart. And the sacrifices of the animals, like those in the temple that Jesus drove out, those things could never truly overcome the obstacle of sin between us and God. Every bit of it, all of it, the Passover festival, the temple, the sacrifices, the rituals, it, was, it only whispered reminders of who God was. This new and expanded temple, it didn't mean that God was known more fully by his people. So it didn't mean that he was worshipped rightly. And so Jesus steps into the temple of Passover. And John says that uh, seeing what he did and, and, and says, remind the disciples of, John, of Psalm 69.9 it says, for zeal for your house is consumed. And if you go back to that scripture and you read verse 9 and 10 in Psalm 69, it says this, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. What did John and the others recognize in the actual moment as Jesus drove out the animals and dumped out crumbs and said uh, to those selling, like, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of I think in the moment they recognized Jesus' passion was the heart of worship. That his desire was to see God worship rightly and that his ministry was all about that. I don't think they knew much more than that at the time. Nevertheless, Jesus was making statements and word and deed that would continue to stretch their understanding of who he is. And ours also. It was later, by John's own account, after Jesus' death and resurrection, that they looked back on these events, and specifically on what he said to the Jews when he was questioned. Then they started to understand more fully. When Jesus was asked by the Jews for a sign, he gave them one that they couldn't possibly test at the moment. And they certainly couldn't fulfill, uh, fully understand. So it's this, John 2, 18-22. They say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus offered them a sign, right? Tear down this temple in three days. I'll raise it. But nobody's going to blow up the temple that day to see if Jesus could rebuild it in three days. Nobody at the time even realized what he was talking, that he wasn't talking about the building, though. 
He was talking about his own body. And what they came to understand was that Jesus had said and what Jesus had said and demonstrated himself to be to be was the new temple. He was replacing it. He was taking place of the sacrifices. He was replacing the need to build something bigger and better. He was replacing the stone. He was replacing the wood. He was replacing all the metal objects that could never make the living God known. And Jesus was making God known in the flesh. Go back to chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was making God known in the flesh. He was doing what the temple had only whispered about. He was what it had always pointed to. Jesus, then, is the latter temple of Haggai. He is better than any temple that was ever be built by hands. The temple had never restored a right relationship between God and his people. Not in the sense that they like, could actually walk and talk together again, like Adam and Eve were able to do with God back in the garden. But Jesus was the true and better temple made a way to know God in the flesh. And he died and he rose again after three days. And he purified us so that God could dwell with us. So that the Holy Spirit could indwell us. So that we could know God more fully and worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's a lot covered about the temple the good news for us this morning is just this, right? Jesus is the true and better temple. Like in Him, we're able to know God for who He really is. There's no barrier. There's no buffer between us. There's no sacrifice needed. There's no price that we have to pay. There's no measuring up that we have to do to find life in Him. I think this means more than I can say. It means more than I can hold or contain community. Like this is good news that can keep on expressing who God is to us. It can keep moving us to know Him more fully for who He really is and what He does and who we are to Him. But with that good news, I think there's also something convicting about this story. Something for us to consider further and even ask the Lord to help us in today's story, Jesus goes in the temple and he drives out the money changers and the traders who were likely set up in the outer court of the temple. Most agree he was in the court of the Gentiles. Which means that in the place where others, where outsiders, were meant to be able to come into the temple so that they too could know God and worship Him. The Jews were using that space to trade and make money for the temple and for themselves. They were creating an obstacle for others to come in. Perhaps they were disregarding them altogether. And hear me, I think the main point is to show us that Jesus is the true and better temple. To show us that who he was claiming to be, which is a huge claim. Because really he's saying that he was tearing down all the walls. He was obliterating all the obstacles between us. That he himself would be our bridge to God. But I wonder also if the church, and if each of us as individuals who make up the church, haven't used Jesus, who is the true and better temple, in the same way the Jews and the Gentile court were using the temple. Have we become 
barriers to Him? Have we built new obstacles for others? Have we disregarded outsiders? Have we used Jesus and Christianity and the church as, as more of like a religious duty, as if worship was about going through some ceremony, some ritual, like coming to church and doing the thing on Sunday? I think most of us would probably answer those questions and say, yeah, we've seen the church do that. But I'm asking them about you and about me. Not just about how we see that at large. About how we are, have done that. Can we be honest about our failures? I suppose the question to enter our time of response with is just this. Jesus broke down the barriers so that we could dwell freely with God and have a new life with is that the Jesus that we're experiencing? And is that what it looks like is happening here to those who look in from the outside? Are there those on the outside looking in who see no way in? When outsiders look in, do they see the real Jesus? Or do they see something? So maybe for us this morning, like if it's coming back to the heart of worship, maybe we come asking the Lord to lead us uh, to see Him as He really is. So we see Him as we, He really is. We, we see God as He really is. And we know what He's doing. And we know what we need. We know what He's about. We know what He's like. Help us to see you as you really are. And to make like our lives, the way that we live in this world, a light for those around us. May we see Jesus for who He really is, and may the ways that we represent Him as less than that to others be turned over like the tables. I think that's a great process. We're going to move into a time of response, and I just want to give you some time to, number one, let Jesus stretch your understanding of who he is. Let him like blow up the barriers. Expose uh, where you feel like you're working your way to him somehow. Let him show you who he really is. And then even ask, Lord, like, help me see where I'm a barrier for someone else. We're going to come and we're going to take communion as we do each week. Uh, as we come, in, come down the middle, you can take the bread and you can dip it in the wine or the juice. When we do this, we are remembering uh, Jesus, that He is our Lord and Savior, and we are proclaiming that truth to one another. And if that's something that you profess, we invite you to come whether you're a member of church, at this church or not, and to take and remember Jesus and proclaim Him together with us. And as you come, there's tithes and offering box in the back. You can give online. None of that really matters about how you give, but let's still take a moment time to remember our provider and worship them in response. Like if that's slipping out of your account, don't let it go unnoticed. Make a spot where you do that as an act of worship. The band's going to come and lead us, and I just want to invite you to take, the time, take some time and pray and ask the Lord to show himself as he truly is. Stretch your understanding of Jesus. And to expose the areas where you're buried. And uh, you pray. I'm going to pray for us, and then as you feel ready, you can come and take it. We'll continue this time.
Let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you. Uh, I mean, I thank you for the whole story of redemption. I, I thank you for how you've always been making your way. I mean, since the garden, since the fall, you're finding ways to step in and to cover our guilt and shame. You're making clothes for Adam and Eve. You're making promises about crushing the head of the serpent. You delivered your people out of slavery. And you gave them a tabernacle. And you gave them a promised land. And you made a way for them to know your presence, to know that you were with them. And you made promises that you were going to make a way for us all to come back to you, to make all things. And in Jesus, it all comes together. There's no barrier. There's no trying to understand you just through objects made with hands. With Jesus in the flesh. With his death and his resurrection, crushed the head of the serpent. He dealt with our sin once and for all. We have no need for sacrifices. We have no need for a veil between us. Your Holy Spirit dwells us as your people. Opening the eyes of our hearts to know you for who you really are. Giving us eyes to comprehend more and more and more just who you are and what you're like and how great your love is for us. Jesus is truly the, the better temple. In him we know you. He is the exact imprint of your image. He is the radiance of your glory. And I just pray this morning that we would see Jesus. That you would help us to see him, right? So that we would know you. And we would worship you right. And we would make it known right.